I was uh, having a meal uh, over lunchtime with a good friend of mine, Sam, and uh, I said to him, I said, Sam, what would your question be to RT after the luncheon break? And uh, interestingly, his was very much along the lines of mine, and that is, could you um, perhaps spend a short time giving us a little bit, uh, expanding a little bit on when you described sanctification? So if you could expand on that a little bit, also bringing in perhaps the relationship between justification, sanctification, and glorification. Coming? There it is. Well, you just asked me to do a whole seminary degree <laughs> in one minute. Sanctification is the process by which we are made holy. And sanctification comes through the Holy Spirit and our obedience to the Holy Spirit and our obedience to the Word. Sanctification follows conversion. It does not precede it. Now, the big mistake of the English Puritans, and this is the part I didn't go into earlier, uh, but I'm still not going into everything on that, was that they confused the two. They had a concept called preparation for grace that you had to be prepared uh, in order to receive grace and conclude that you are saved. And they used the word mollification, M-O-L-L-I-F-Y, to mollify, soften. And that this was done through the law. And uh, the problem was they would define repentance as turning from every known sin. And they made repentance precede faith. By making repentance precede faith, if you define repentance as they did, most people, unless you're really self-righteous, never knew whether they were saved. Because they would always say, well, I've repented, but I'm not sure I repented enough because I've still got this sin, I've still got this weakness. And... The problem with the Puritan doctrine of assurance is that it gave no assurance. Now, the reason I can talk like this, this was my thesis at Oxford. This is what I did. This was, is the area of my expertise. And I will never forget it as long as I live. I was sitting in the British Library back in 1975 reading... Thomas Hooker and his view of preparation that, they, that was their actual word preparation for faith and the more I read the more I thought is this why I've come to England to study this what kind of gospel is this where it was all legalism and all trying to be holy. And if you 
finally felt you were sufficiently holy, you could claim that you're saved. Now, they would deny that this was justification by works. It's kind of like cessationists who say they do not believe in cessationism, but they might as well believe in it because you find a typical cessationist, uh, he won't admit if there is the spirit at work today. He said, well, that's not God. That's not God. And so when it came to the uh, Puritan view of assurance, they never got to assurance. They just never managed to get there because they never knew for sure. The, the architectural mind of English Puritanism was William Perkins. And um, the title of my Oxford thesis was the, was the Doctrine of Faith in William Perkins to the Westminster Assembly. William Perkins himself, who died in 1602, was not sure whether he was saved. After all those years, he wasn't sure. He had agony whether he was really ready. And that's the trouble. Whenever you put sanctification before uh, regeneration or justification, or even if you make it a condition of conversion or, or, or salvation, the person will always be wondering whether they're saved. Always. He can't help it. Uh, so, a person is saved by looking to Jesus Christ and trusting Him plus nothing. And uh, when you're able to do that, you know, that takes faith because people still think, oh, can I really believe that it's just that he died for me? That's, that's too good to be true. Sure, there must be more to it than that. Well, I'm going to tell you, that is the gospel. That's why I said my opening comment today, the hardest doctrine in the world to maintain is justification by faith because we end up thinking, that's too good to be true. And then we all see our unworthiness and we think, oh, I'm not worthy to be saved. By the way, justification by faith is forensic. That means it's legal. It's not the way you see yourself. It's the way God sees you. And if you go by what you see in yourself, you'll always doubt. But if you just take his word and believe his word, that's what Abraham did. He didn't have any reason to believe that Sarah or he could ever have children, but he believed it. And because he believed it, he was, he was counted righteousness. Okay, it's this order. Regeneration, unconscious work of the Spirit, saving faith, sanctification, which is the doctrine of gratitude, and then glorification. Uh, that is the day when we will be just like Jesus. Or to quote St. Augustine, four stages. First, man was created able to sin. And then after the fall, he was not able not to sin. Then after conversion, he's able not to sin. And then glorification, not able to sin. If you can absorb that. Uh, how have I done in answering your question? Okay. Sean, if you could just perhaps just mention your name and where you're from. Hi, RT. Sean Dooley from Reading. Um, Reading. Yes. The, the question I have is, 
Jewish Christians that were still living a sort of a Judaistic lifestyle and yet were clearly Christians, how did they work out their continued adherence to many things of the law uh, and yet were sort of completely convinced they were saved through Jesus Christ alone? In other words, you're wondering, were they really saved? No, not that they were really saved, but just how did they work out when they continued with circumcision and the prayer times at the temple and the feasts and the observances and so on, and yet were genuinely saved? How, how do you understand that they would have tied those things together? Okay, well... But perhaps, sorry, could I just... Something else related to that is that sometimes you get the feeling that people who are very antinomian, anything that is sort of a discipline or uh, an adherence in your life as a Christian, they would sort of say, oh, well, that's not grace. You, you know, you need to... Um, and yet those uh, Jewish Christians would have had many disciplines in their lives and yet still been utterly depending on Christ alone. Uh, well, I'm not sure I understand your question, but it sounds like it could be can a person who doesn't believe in the eternal security of the believer be saved? Because they believe that you can lose your salvation. And the way you lose your salvation is by falling into sin. And therefore, they avoid falling into sin to keep themselves saved. So you could ask the question, how could they be saved if they are still feeling that if they fall into sin, they'll lose their salvation? Because they surely are saved only by Christ. And my answer is that their faulty theology is also cleansed by the blood of Jesus. So their efforts to keep themselves saved uh, sadly uh, keeps them from victory and, in, and gaining an inheritance. But even so, they're saved. And so with these Christians that would insist on circumcision, or some of them keeping certain holy days, uh, this is extra baggage that I would say would be cleansed by the blood of Jesus. How they worked it out, I wasn't there. I did, you know, to know how they all did it. Uh, if they listened to Paul, they'd be okay, but they were suspicious of Paul. What have I not answered that you want me to clarify? It was just the thing that as far as I can understand, there were Christians who were Jews. And let's say, for example, in Jerusalem, I can remember reading about James and saying, you know, reports about him in, in, in early uh, accounts were that he was a very, uh, a man who adhered to the law and was righteous according to Jewish uh, um, customs was how, I'm not asking you how, how did they do it, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to say from your theological point of view, how do you marry the, the thing of justification totally by grace and by Christ alone with the fact that they continued observing Jewish customs and so on? They didn't see them as earning salvation for them, but they just continued to observe them maybe as symbols of what Christ had fulfilled or... but. Yeah. Well, they were very, very worried that non-Christian Jews would see Gentiles coming in, and they were very sensitive to any kind of criticism from Jews. And they wanted to make sure 
that Gentiles who came into the fold without being circumcised would adhere to certain things so as not to bring reproach upon the Christian faith. And that's why you have those four things in Acts 15. Now, we could argue whether they were really led by the Holy Spirit or they were acting out of fear or uh, truly uh, using common sense. It, it, those were very, very difficult days for them because you had, first of all, the non-Christian Jew who didn't believe anything about what Jesus did. Then you had the Jews who did accept Jesus, but they still thought you had to be circumcised. And so they were all concerned about how it's going to look if they embrace Jesus Christ alone and now let Gentiles in. So they came up with those four principles in Acts 15. So at least would keep the Christian faith above reproach and be somewhat impervious to the criticism of non-Christian Jews. Have I understood your question yet? I don't know that I've understood your question, but I'm answering a lot of good stuff here. Maybe I could rephrase it like this. If you had the opportunity to go back in time now and you met James and he was on his way to observe this feast and that prayer time and so on, what would you say to him as a Jew in, in Jerusalem? Um, although he, he depended entirely on Christ for his salvation, I think that's pretty clear from his writings. Um, what, what would you say to him? Well, that's a very good question. Now I've understood it. <laughs> First of all, I think I'd be a little nervous around James. You realize he was the big gun then. It wasn't Paul. Paul was a nobody. Paul was looked at with suspicion. And Paul got their goats, if I may use that expression. He annoyed them. He irked them. James was the huge man of stature. And so I would be very intimidated to try to sort him out. Uh, Paul himself might want to say, why do you suppose Jesus died on the cross? Jesus fulfilled the law. And everything you have in the Old Testament was a shadow of things to come. But you see, I doubt that James had read the epistle to the Hebrews or grasped things like that. And uh, what one would have to do is to point out that everything that went on in that parenthesis, 1,300-year parenthesis between the law and the fulfilling of the, of the Christ, was over. It's finished. We're not under the law. We are back to where Abraham was who didn't even know about the law. And I would say to James, uh, uh, this is our proto-Christian, Abraham. And what he was like uh, and what he did is our example. He had saving faith. He had persistent faith. Uh, he was a godly man. And uh, he did it without any law. And there were no holy days. There was no Day of Atonement. There was no Yom Kippur. There was no Feast of the Tabernacles. And, and when Jesus died on the cross, he nailed all that to the cross. Uh, how you'd get that over to James, I don't know. 
I'm having the equivalent with Rabbi Rosen, uh, and he's not even saved. And so it might be harder if he were, if he were a typical uh, Messianic Jew like some are today and, and still want to hold on to certain feasts, which I don't get. How have I done? Boy, th- three times charm. We, might, we, we made it. I, now, I, I, I had a feeling that I didn't get your question, but I do now, and it's a very good one. And I'll think about that, and tomorrow afternoon I'll have a better answer. <laughs> Jacob from this church. Um, Arti, the fundamental question a lot of us as Christians always have is, once saved, always saved, um, in, on the basis of what we have. Um, I don't know how the question will come across, but for a lot of us, sometimes by free will allows us to come from the enemy's camp to come to know the Lord uh, uh, personally. Now, in a court of law, that same principle of free will must be also given to a person who says, I have been saved, I now have free will choice, or saying, I don't want to be saved, I don't want... Uh, where do we stand on that? Because a lot of, for a lot of Christians, this is an issue where one saves, always saves, is what we believe in. But free will dictates the right for me to say no. So uh, what's your understanding on that? And a parenthesis question, loss of hearing. I just wanted to bring that back. Yeah, said, well, these questions that you are putting today are very, very good ones. I mean, this is the third one. And every single one of them could be a whole book. I mean, Martin Luther wrote a book, uh, Bondage of the Will. Jonathan Edwards wrote a book, Freedom of the Will, which is what you're talking about. Okay. Uh, We use the phrase free moral agent. But think about it. First of all, we're not free. We're in bondage to sin. We're not moral. The poison of asps is under our lips. And we're not the agent. The Holy Spirit's the agent. All right. Now... Born again, Jesus prays. You must be born again. Let's talk about your first birth. What cooperation did you have in being born? Did you notify your parents and say, look, I don't want to be born? You were born. It was passive. Your will didn't come into it. Am I right? When you're born of the Spirit, same thing. Now, We may think our will comes into it uh, when the Apostle Paul on the way to Damascus wasn't going to a Billy Graham campaign. He was going to kill Christians. And the first thing he says, what do you want me to do, Lord? What happened? Well, the Holy Spirit just came in and changed his will. It wasn't his will, yet it was because this is what he wanted. But it was something God did. In the same way, we are saved by the sheer grace of God. We are kept saved by the sheer grace of God. Now, our wills can cause us to forfeit our inheritance. And that's what the Galatians were on the verge of doing. We won't know until we get to heaven whether Paul's letter did any good. He was convinced that it was going to do some good. But we don't know. When we get to heaven, we'll find out. He was sure they were saved. There's nothing you can do to get unsaved. But you can lose your inheritance. And that would be by your will. Uh, 
And yet, if I could go on, the irony of our will as Christians is if we forfeit our inheritance, it's our own fault. But if we gain it, we give him all the glory because we, you know, I can't imagine that I deserve to be saved. I'm surprised that I'm a Christian and I'll be even greater surprised if, if when I get to heaven, I will get a reward. Martin Luther said when he gets to heaven, he expects three surprises. One, he will see people there he didn't expect to be there. Two, there'll be people not there he thought would be there. And three, that he's there himself. When I get to heaven, I expect three surprises. One, those who will get a reward that I didn't think would get a reward. Those who won't get a reward that I thought would. But the surprise of surprises is if I hear from the lips of Jesus, well done. I'd rather have that than anything in the world. So my will didn't come into it when it came to conversion or getting to heaven, but it has a lot to do with whether I will achieve an inheritance. And I'm not there yet. I'm working on it. Artie, in, in the light of your answer to that question, um, I was just wondering if you could explain what your doctrine of election would be. And I know that can be a, a controversial subject, but uh, just I've um, often heard a, a quote that says, um, we should not ask why does God not save everyone, but be amazed that he should save anyone at all. Um, but I just want to know what your view of election was, the doctrine of election. Okay. I remember my publishers here today, my editor and publicity uh, lady, they've come to eavesdrop on this this afternoon. We're going to do a little short film after a while. I remember I, I have never gone to my publisher, Hawden Stoughton, in order to write a book. They come to me and we, we discuss it. But I did make one exception, and that's 25 years ago. I asked to do a book on tithing. And it got real quiet on the phone. <laughs> and they said, well, we'll come back to you. And they had a committee meeting. And they came back and said, will you buy a thousand copies? <laughs> that's right. Did you girls know that? Yeah. That is true. They said, will you buy a thousand copies? And I said, yes. They said, okay, we'll publish it. They wanted to cover their losses. They didn't. They thought it would be a financial disaster. Well, I'm going to have a reason for this. There's a reason to my madness. I'll, I'll come to your question about election. In the meantime, I got John Stott to endorse it. I got Billy Graham to endorse it. I got Sir Fred Catherwood and, and, re, and more recently, the Archbishop of Canterbury. And it's been a good seller. Uh, in, in, in America, it's gone through its 30th printing. All right. I wrote a book that had an unpopular subject, and it probably did some good. I don't know how many years left I've got. My heart surgeon said that this new aortic valve should give me 15 more years. I would love to write a book on predestination. 
but I will probably, they'll have a committee meeting and say, will you buy a thousand copies? <laughs> because I don't think it's a subject many care about, and especially my own view of it, because my view of it is not the one people want to hear. Acts 13, 48. As many as were ordained to eternal life believed. This is Luke's commentary on the Gentiles that were saved. As many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Now, Luke could have said, as many as believed were appointed to eternal life. Had he said that, it would have been a true statement. But that isn't what he said. He said, as many as were ordained to eternal life believed, which showed that those who were predestined were the ones who believed. Luke wasn't surprised. This was his theology. It was the theology of Jesus. He said, Heavenly Father, I thank you that you've hid these from the wise and the prudent and, and, and revealed them to babes, even so it seemed good in your sight. All that uh, believe the Father are saved, and whoever the Son gives life to them will be saved. It is what God does. So the bottom line is, God doesn't save everybody. I wish he did, but he doesn't. Uh, he said to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. Uh, whom he predestinated, he called. Whom he called, he justified. Whom he justified, he glorified. In order to be glorified, you had to be justified. In order to be justified, you had to be called. In order to be called, you had to be predestined. Now, there would be those who say God predestines everybody. Not so, according to Romans 8.30. Whom he predestined, he called. Whom he called, he justified. Whom he justified, he glorified. He just doesn't predestine everybody. If you ask why, I can only say what Jesus said. Even so, it seemed good in your sight. I don't say I like it. If God were to leave it up to me, I would save everybody. But he didn't leave it up to me. And so I am his ambassador. Any ambassador represents his own government. He may not understand all the positions of that government. He may privately wonder about them. But he doesn't say anything but what the government stands for. That's his job. So when I preach, I don't know why there's a hell. If God were to leave it up to me, there'd be no hell. But there is. So I'm going to defend it. I don't understand election. If it were left up to me, I would save everybody. But what I'm going to do when I preach, I'm not going to quarrel with God who has made it obvious to me what the truth is. The only other thing I would say is, I don't wear this on my sleeve. I'm a Calvinist. And most people know that. But the reason that I've been accepted on both sides, and I've been, I went to Spring Harvest 17 years in a row, uh, the reason I was able to do that is that I don't push this. 
I don't go in there and say, I'm going to straighten you people out. You need to be Calvinist before this week is over. I could do that, but I'd never be invited back. And I wouldn't do any good even that week. Wouldn't convert three people that way. And yet, at Westminster Chapel, I didn't wear it on my sleeve. I, I, it only came up if the text called for it. But the funny thing was, people that would come there years later, this is what they all believed. They didn't get it because I rammed it down their throats. It just kind of comes by living in the atmosphere, and then it just becomes a part of, of, of the way they think. I'm beginning to ramble. Have I done all right? Okay, thank you. Somebody at the back, perhaps. I'm sitting in the front. Hi, I'm Zoe from Barnet, and I just wanted to ask you, um, how has your vision of Christ changed from when you started out in ministry to where you are now? Your understanding of him, what has surprised you about what you feel and think about him, and has it changed? Does that make sense? I don't know. You know... I think the echo in the room is one reason I'm having trouble hearing some of these questions. So, you tell me what she just asked. Did you hear her? This will help. Well, okay. I've been saved for 67 years. How many here have been saved 67 years? Okay. I, I'm, I'm 73 years old. I was converted when I was six. Get, take, get this hyper-Calvinist out of here. I was converted when I was six, but when I was 19, I was made the minister of a church while I was a student at Trevecca Nazarene University in Nashville. We live in Nashville now. Driving in my car one day at the age of 20, I had what I call, uh, probably not the best way to put it, but I call it my Damascus Road experience. I was converted already. But the person of Jesus was more real to me that day than in any of you are to me right now. He was so real. I have... That was in 1955. I've spent the last 50 years or more trying to grasp all that I saw that day. And I'm not sure I've even come up to it. Um, it was on that day that I knew I was eternally saved, by the way. Before that day was over, I began to see the doctrine of election. And by the way, I wasn't brought up to believe that. I certainly wasn't brought up to believe eternal salvation through faith because I was taught you could lose your salvation. And in moments, the whole of 
soteriology was implanted into my mind. So my vision hasn't changed at all. It's just that I'm trying to grasp it more and more and more. That's the best I can do in just a couple minutes. Thank you. Are we in the side, perhaps? Not coming through. RT, I wonder if I could refer you to a couple of scriptures in light of what you were saying earlier about faith in the faith of Jesus. Uh, immediately came to mind two scriptures. In 1 John 3, it talks about the importance of knowing Jesus and how through that we overcome sin. But more specifically in James 2, it talks about faith without deeds is dead. And I wonder if you could just comment on those scriptures. What was about James? What two? Uh, James 2 talks about the faith without deeds is okay. dead. All right. I'm happy to answer that. By the way, I've got a book on it. <laughs> Not by Hodder and Stoughton. These, these girls are from Hodder and Stoughton. Uh, this book, uh, I think it's Paternoster or Send the Light or OM, I forget which. They, they change the name every other week. <laughs> There's two volumes on James. Volume one is called Justification by Works. Volume two talks about the way of wisdom. I had one of the greatest theological breakthroughs of my life in 1980. I remember going... I felt led to preach on James, and, uh, and I thought after about three verses, oh dear, what have I done? Because what am I going to do when I get to chapter 2? And believe me, I dreaded this. And I just was kind of given a quiet assurance, you will know when you need to know. And I remember when I came to chapter 2, verse 13, and I was dreading the following week on faith without works is dead and, and so forth. Do you know that week, as I was preparing that verse, I saw something I had never seen ever. And I have to tell you, I don't know of anybody else who saw it. You cannot find it in any book in 2,000 years. I began to see something. When James says, can faith save him, meaning the one, uh, it says, well, hand me a Bible. I put my Bible away. Let me just read it. Here. Thank you. Okay, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can faith save him? The natural reading of that verse would make you think that the him refers to the person doesn't have works. That's, and that's what Luther thought it meant. And because Luther thought it meant that, he said James is a, an epistle of straw. 
And one year before Luther died, he actually said, we will not teach this book in our school. He was so against the book of James. Because when James says, can faith save him? Luther thought, and everybody else's thought, that it means the him, that the one has no faith. And I saw something all of a sudden. I know I've got this right. I, w- I know this as much as I know what I believe about faith of Christ and justification by faith. The hymn refers to verse 6. Oh, it's interesting that in this version you gave me, it actually says it. Look at verse 6. But you have dishonored the poor man. Pro, the poor man is the Greek word protokon, man, accusative, masculine, singular. The authorized version says you have despised the poor, and you would think it means people. And because of that, the poor man gets lost. And I saw when we got to verse 14 that James hasn't changed the subject at all. He's still talking about the poor man. Everybody thinks he's changed the subject. Wrong. He's still talking about him. And so if you read it this way, if if someone says he has faith but does not have works, can faith save the poor man? That's what it means. The hymn is also accusative masculine singular. It's still referring to the poor man. Can faith save that poor man? No. Do you know what? Two years later, I got one of the most encouraging letters. It was from Michael Eaton. He said, R.T., your interpretation of James 2.14 is the reason I began to open my church to black people in Johannesburg. He says, when I saw that that's what that meant, that changed my ministry and our church. And I'll tell you one other thing that nobody knows, and you'll be the first to know it. The last time I ever was with Martin Lloyd-Jones before he got ill, on those Thursdays when I would go sit at his feet, it was James 2.14 I was to preach that week. And I gave him my view of James 2.14. And I quote him verbatim. You've convinced me. I've never said that to anybody before. All right. You won't find it anywhere else. But that's what that verse means. Shall we quit on that? Michael, just a, a question looking to the future um, of the church. We've come through some incredible things the last hundred years and fundamentalism and evangelicalism and the charismatic renewal. Um, Glenn and I have experienced incredible dynamics of the Holy Spirit in 25 years of being in charismatic churches. We've just come back from a conference that's emphasizing the centrality of the preached word of God. My question is about uh, the fact that we don't want to, I don't think anyone here wants to be put in a camp of either word or spirit. And how do you marry the two? What do you see coming in the future 
regarding word and spirit ministry in the church? Well, on this, my views are out in the open. I mean, what I've shared with you just now, I don't think many knew, although my view of James 2.14 is known. I take the view that there has been a silent divorce in the church between the Word and the Spirit. Now, when there's a divorce, sometimes the children stay with the mother, sometimes the children stay with the father. In this divorce, you've got some on the Word side and those on the Spirit side. But what's the difference? Well, take those that are on the Word side. What's the message? They say, well, the honor of God's name will not be restored until we get back to earnestly contending the faith once delivered unto the saints. We know our doctrine, expository preaching, rediscovery of Luther, Calvin, Zwingli, Jonathan Edwards. And until we get back to the word, the honor of God's name will not be restored. What's wrong with that emphasis? Nothing. It's exactly right. Take those on the spirit side. What is the message? Well, the honor of God's name will not be restored until we get back to the book of Acts, where there were signs, wonders, miracles. Get in Peter's shadow, you're healed. Have a prayer meeting, the place is shaken. Lie to the Holy Ghost, and you're struck dead. And until that kind of power is returned to the church, the honor of God's name will not be restored. What's wrong with that emphasis? Nothing. It's exactly right. You see, what happens is people are entrenched on both views and they won't learn from the other. The spirit people would say, you think I don't preach the Bible? Everything I preach is the Bible. The word people, you say, you don't think we believe in the Holy Spirit? Of course we believe in the Holy Spirit. And neither will learn from the other. I believe that the revival that we long for will be postponed on and on and on until instead of it being one or the other, it's the wedding of the two. And the simultaneous combination will result in spontaneous combustion. And then the honor of God's name will be restored. But I could add one more thing, and it's not a small thing. I casually referred to Abraham, who began to think it wasn't going to happen. After he believed the promise, and it was accounted for righteousness, after a while he thought, hmm, you know, I don't know, Sarah's getting older, not sure she can have children, and Sarah came up with the idea, you know, sleep with Hagar. Uh, Hagar was an option, and Abraham didn't seem to object. I'm thinking what you're thinking. <laughs> he did. She had a baby. It was a boy. And for 13 years, Abraham sincerely thought that Ishmael was the promised son. 
And one day God said, wrong. Sarah will conceive. Well, I remember in 1992 when we had our first Word Spirit Conference at Wembley. Anybody, was anybody there? Paul Kane and I had our first Word Spirit Conference. And on that night, I said that what we have seen up to now, the charismatic movement, and you name it, is Ishmael. But Isaac is coming. And as the promise to Isaac was a hundred times greater than it was to Ishmael, so what is coming down the road will be a hundred times greater than anything we've ever seen. The greatest work of the Spirit since Pentecost, and it will be the Word and the Spirit coming together at long last. And that is what I believe. And I will go out on a limb and say, I will be alive to see the beginnings of it. So that's what I believe. Um, hello, RT. I'm Kathy from Potter's Bar. And um, I was looking and thinking of when you were speaking this morning. Thank you for the, the sound teaching, good teaching that we had this morning. And I was thinking um, during the lunch break about what you were saying to the when Paul addressed the Galatians about um, m you know moving away from faith in, in Jesus and actually going back to some of the Jewish laws. And I was thinking there were certain parts in the Bible where one could um, think that Paul himself was picking out certain parts of the Jewish law and adhering to. One in um, um, Acts 18, 18, when he has taken a vow and he has his hair cut to fulfill a vow. And also um, with Peter, when he had the vision of the cloth coming down and he wouldn't eat from it. Um, and also when Paul at the, the Council of uh, uh, Jerusalem, when it says here that when they heard this, they praised God, then they said to Paul, you see, brother, how many thousands of Jews have believed and all of them are zealous for the law. They have been informed that you teach all the Jews who live among the Gentiles to turn away from Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or live according to our customs. What shall we do? They will certainly hear that you have come. So what will we tell them? And there are four men with us who have made a vow. Take these men and join their purification rites. Um, they, and pay their expenses so they can have their heads shaved, then everybody will know there is no truth in these reports about you. And Paul goes with them. So sometimes it can appear that Paul is contradicting and picking okay. out pieces. So is your question, why did Paul have his head shaved? Why did he adhere to those particular parts of the law? I don't think God's finished with any of us yet. Um, but there's a wisdom as well, isn't there, that Paul calls on? Okay. Well... What I'm going to answer, I would not go to the stake for. I would think what I've said today up to now, I, I would go to the stake for, I believe. On this, I can only give you my opinion. My opinion is that Paul was under pressure because he was so keen 
to give his offering that he'd taken all over the Mediterranean to the Jews, and he wanted everybody to know what he had done. You see, he took a collection. He got it from the Philippians. He got it from the Corinthians. And it was for the poor in Jerusalem. And he was determined to do it. And he wanted to show the Jews what Galatians and, and what uh, Gentile Christians could do so that they would be impressed. He was afraid that all that he'd done would come to nothing. And if he got, uh, if they saw him anywhere near the temple, uh, he would have lost all credibility. So he did it as an act of humility to show that he would concede on this point just in order for them to appreciate what he did. Well, that he did it because he just didn't want all of his efforts to go down the drain. The irony is it did no good. It did no good because once they found out who he was, they had a riot, and then he gets a chance to give his testimony, and you think for a minute he's going to win them over until he said... And God said, go to the Gentiles. And the moment he said that, they went wild. And they captured him, and he, and he barely, he almost lost his life, and he had, he had to leave. So by humbling himself to let, him, let them shave his head, it didn't even work. So it, it was a, a moment when in weakness, he thought he was doing the right thing. I think he made a mistake. And, and nothing good came out of it anyway. Now, those are my views on that. But I, I, as I say, I wouldn't go to the stake for that one. But you tell me what, if, if, it, what, if, if that's not what it was, you tell me. Hello, um, Chris from Stevenage. Um, my question is, um, how do we read the um, parts of the law or the um, instructions that are given in the Old Testament and how do these benefit us? Paul said to Timothy, the law is good if a person uses it lawfully. We can learn a lot from the law. Uh, we can learn uh, how seriously God takes sin. Uh, the reason for the sacrificial system is to show how awful sin is and that uh, only a blood sacrifice could atone for it. Uh, and everything in the law is for our learning. And the more we know about it, the better. As long as we are aware, we're not under it. And so we learn from it. And uh, the people who don't know it are impoverished. But that's not all. Said Paul, the law was not made for the righteous man, but for the unrighteous. So righteousness exalts a nation. Sin is a reproach to any people. And so it's a wonderful thing if the Ten Commandments are adhered by society because it raises the standard of living for everybody. And uh, so we learn from the law because of how it points to Christ and for the good effect that it does have. So I'm very glad you asked that question because someone could walk out of here and misunderstand uh, some of the things that have been said. 
So remember that the law was made not for the righteous, but for the unrighteous. And uh, that is the best answer I can give you in just a minute or two. Does that help? Okay. We're going to be finishing in about five minutes. And uh, Nick just reminded me uh, in reading uh, R.T.'s biography on his history, where he was born. Uh, one thing I did read, which was very interesting, was his meeting with Yasser Arafat. And uh, maybe in closing, not as a question, but could you maybe share for five minutes how that meeting went? Uh, perhaps some of your feelings on what that might, uh, might imply with some of the repercussions of that. Um, and then we'll break for coffee. I'd like to write a book on that. I'm glad my publisher's here. I, I got more ideas for books. Andrew White, who is the canon of Coventry Cathedral, a canon of Coventry, Coventry Cathedral, uh, re was the successor to Terry Waite. You remember Terry Waite. And uh, then came Andrew White, who was the Archbishop of Canterbury's envoy to the Middle East. And uh, Andrew wrote me years ago, would I go to Israel with him? And I wrote back... <laughs> I forgot that he tells this to me. You know, it's enough that you put him off me forever. I just said, the last thing I need is another trip to Israel. I said, thank you very much. God bless you. And, and you know, he really felt put down. The truth is, I didn't know who he was. And I just didn't want to go to Israel. Then, lo and behold, somebody else asked me, would I please go to Julia Fisher? Uh... She used to be with Premier Radio, and she and she was getting up a tour with, oh, I forget who all was in it, one Anglican bishop, and I can't think now, I guess it's my jet lag, but they were, would I, would they, could they use my name on a brochure to help get a, a tour to Israel? Uh, and I said yes. And in the meantime, I announced uh, our retirement, and I was going back to America. And in the meantime, they were building up for this tour, and they had 250 people. And uh, so I said, uh, well, you don't need me now. You got the people. Oh, well, but you, you don't understand, R.T. These people think you're going to be on the tour, and, and, and that's why they're coming, and you've got to be there. And by now, I've loved, lived, moved to America. And they wrote me, you've got to come back for the tour. I said, well, will you pay my way? Well, they'll, yes, we'll pay your way. Those were the days when the suicide bombings were intensifying. And my wife, Louise, was scared to death that I'd go over there and get killed. I said, honey, it ain't going to happen. There's not going to be a tour Every time the phone would ring, I'd think, ah, oh, London calling, tour canceled. And it would be London. No, tour is on. Our people are coming. I said, you mean I've got to go? Yes. And I said to Louise, you just pray for me. In the meantime, of course, it was 9-11, we call it, you know, bombing of New York and the Pentagon by... Uh, Osama bin Laden. I fly into Tel Aviv. There's a man 
with a big sign, Dr. Kendall. So I walked to him. I said, you looking for me? He said, yes, I'm your driver. I'll take you to your hotel. He said, get in. I said, can I sit up front with you? He said, sure. I said, what's your name? He said, Osama. I said, let me tell you something. I pray for Osama bin Laden every day. You do? Why? I said, a man by the name of John Wesley used to say, God does nothing but in answer to prayer. If he's right, somebody prayed for Saul of Tarsus. And nobody expected Saul of Tarsus to be saved. So I pray for bin Laden. I said, I'll tell you not only that, I pray for Yasser Arafat. You pray for Arafat? Yeah. I said, I started praying for Yasser Arafat in, 2000, in, in 1982, 1982. He said, what would you do if you met Yasser Arafat? I said, I would pray for him. What would you say in your prayer? I said, I would ask God to give him wisdom. I think he needs wisdom right now. I think he's discouraged. Because that very week, President Bush had uh, isolated uh, Ramallah, Arafat, and approved of the Israeli bombing the compound. I said, I think Arafat needs wisdom. He said, would you like to meet Arafat? I said, sure. He said, I can make it happen. Well, it turned out that he couldn't make it happen. But because of that conversation, I said to Julia Fisher, when I got to the hotel, my driver wants me to meet Arafat. He said, would you go see Arafat? Oh, of course I would. I've been praying for him for 20 years. Okay, Julia told that to Andrew White who was annoyed that I wouldn't go to Israel with him, but wanted me to call him. So I did. And so he said, uh, so what would you do if you met Arafat? I said, uh, well, I've been praying for him for 20 years. He called me the next day. He said, Yasser Arafat will see you tomorrow at 6 o'clock in Ramallah. I said, how on earth did you do that? Nobody can get in. Even the Bishop of Jerusalem couldn't get in. Nobody can get in to see Arafat. He said, see me at 6 o'clock tomorrow. Well, it turned out that Andrew White is the only man in the world who had the respect of Arafat and the Israelis. So he took me in for what should have been a 15-minute perfunctory visit. We stayed together an hour and 45 minutes. Arafat and I bonded. I said, Ra'is, Arabic word for president. I was told to call him Ra'is. I said, I can't prove this. But I think I've prayed for you more than any church leader in the whole world. I said, I've started praying for you in 1982. I've prayed for you thousands of times. 
and tears filled his eyes. And for the next hour and 45 minutes, I emphasized one thing. I mean, I hammered it. I hammered it. I, one thing, that Jesus died on the cross. Jesus died on the cross. Why do that? Well, because Islamic teaching is that Jesus didn't die on the cross. A lot of people don't know this, that Islamists do not believe he died. They believe Allah delivered him from the cross. I said, Ra'is, he died. Well, he brought his Quran over and sat next to me. He says, look at this. Did you know the only woman mentioned in the Quran is the Virgin Mary? And he showed me. I said, as, as if I could read Arabic. <laughs> I said, well, how interesting. That means that according to the Quran, Jesus is the Son of God because he had no earthly father. And across the table was Saab Arakat. Saab Arakat is the Israeli is the negotiator with the Israelis. He's the chief spokesman for the Palestinians. You see his name in the paper every other day. He writes me. I got a letter from him two days ago. We're still in touch. Well, the bottom line is that Arafat and I developed a friendship and Andrew White couldn't believe what he was witnessing. I went back five times to see Arafat. I even took Mel Gibson's film in and Arafat watched it for, for two hours with 30 members of the PLO. Arafat wept like a child all the way through it. We prayed together, things happened, and I had lunch with him twice. And the last episode was going to be that I took Louise and I was going to. He invited Louise to come to Ramallah for her 65th birthday. And that's when he became fatally ill, and they flew him to Paris. Louise was, was there in Jerusalem waiting to go see Arafat, and Arafat was unconscious. And I never saw him again. I'm probably the only American who wept when Arafat died. I loved him. And he loved me. And all the PLO says, our president likes you. They couldn't get over it. All I did is talk about Jesus. That's all I did. And so people say, is he saved? I can only say we won't know until we get to heaven. A lot happened that I won't go into. Uh, that's enough. That answers that question. Thank this you very Bible much, Bible. Thank you. That, that's a great translation, ESV. Marty, thank you very, very much. It's uh, been like sitting in the living room, having a coffee, and uh, just listening to you has been an absolute privilege. Thank you for that last uh, reminiscing, and yes, thank you very much.